Matthew 13, beginning in verse 53. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, came to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Think about it for a moment. How is it possible for men to hate two of the most significant men in the history of the world? One of which was not just a man, but the Son of God as well. And I'm referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said, No man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. They both were predestined to have their ministries. Both ministries were prophesied in the Scripture to take place. It was the eternal plan of God, the Father, to have their ministries the way they were. John the Baptist and Jesus, they were born relatively at the same time. We have that encounter of, of Mary and Elizabeth, both with child, Elizabeth with John the Baptist and Mary with, with Jesus. John was prophesied to be the forerunner of the Christ to prepare the nation to receive its Messiah. He came preaching a baptism of repentance. A way that if you deal, there's a way to deal with your sins of being a sinner. Repent of it. Prepare your heart to receive he who will come. That I said, that John said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch... uh, the thatch on his sandals. He will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. I only baptize you with water. Regarding John the Baptist, you wouldn't find a more dedicated prophet of God than John the Baptist. His whole ministry was a great testimony. As you read the book of John, uh, he, he bore testimony to the light, that Jesus was the light. He was the light of the world, and in this light was the life of men. The long-awaited Messiah had finally come, dawned upon the stage of human history. All the prophecies were coming to pass, not only with regard to John the Baptist, but with regard to Jesus. The nation should have rejoiced. Freedom was at hand. But he didn't rejoice. As, as the Apostle John writes in his gospel account, it says, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. How could this be possible? Both Jesus, both John and Jesus, will be hated of men. Hated of men. If if there is this isn't the most one of the most demonstrable indications of man's total depravity, I don't know what is. 
As Jesus said in John 3, says, Men love the darkness rather than the light. Men hate the light because their deeds are evil, Jesus says. That's why they don't believe in me. Because they don't want to believe. They prefer to live in their rebellious lifestyle, he says. They hate me because they want to justify their evil actions. In other words, because men are totally depraved, and what we mean by totally depraved is this. And we've got to be sure that we understand these terms. I mean, these, this, that term's been around for a long time. Totally depraved doesn't mean that men are, are the worst that they could be. Totally depraved in the scripture means that sin has impacted every facet of our being. Uh, when we think about man, we think about his, his, his mind, his heart, his will. All of this has been tainted by sin. We get into trouble when you don't believe that. One, one of the problems historically is that, and one of the, uh, the great theologian of, of, of Romanism, Thomas Aquinas, what got set the visible church down a road that had all these terrible consequences ultimately is because Aquinas says, well, man has been impacted by sin, but his mind, his mind has been left intact. Well, that's a, well, that sent the church down the wrong track. That's part of the problem. Man's mind. Man's mind has not been left un, unstained. The scripture makes it very clear that the mind of the unbelievers are held in bondage to sin and to Satan. And so what we see here, <clears throat> I trust that I don't have to uh, convince you that just how evil people can be, because I think you know just how evil they can be. Those who think that men are basically good, it's hard to imagine people actually think that men are basically good. They've got to have their head in the sand. Uh, it's a foolish thought to think, and it's contrary to the truth, to think that men are basically good, that they will always choose right. Jesus called men to repent of their sins. Jesus called men to repent of their sins, to find forgiveness. We are guilty. That's the point. We have transgressed the law of God. We are guilty. Men outside of Christ hate God, and they will find excuses to hate God. Jesus we're told, will teach unlike any man ever taught. When he comes into the synagogues, he's going to amaze the town folk of Nazareth. Wherever Jesus spoke, when he was speaking at the mountain, we've already seen this coming down from the mountain when he was praying, uh, he, he taught the multitudes, and it says they were, they were amazed that no one had ever taught with such authority like this. They were used to these scribal uh, teaching, which was very indecisive, uh, plain. Jesus, uh, there was nothing plain about Jesus' speech. He was right to the point. He went to the heart. He spoke with, as if he knew what he was saying. He, there was this conviction. It's, it's obvious when people heard him that he was different than others. What will Jesus do? He cast out demons. 
He'll heal the sick. The lame will walk. The deaf will hear. The blind are going to see. And yet, despite all of this, Jesus is going to be hated for this. And he's going to be killed for this. Brethren, don't, we ought not to marvel at, uh, at the times in which we, we live. Uh, I think at times, and, and I'm, I'm one to think this, get uh, dejected as I look out on the landscape of what's happening in our culture and, and the, the degeneracy that we see in our culture. Um, but I ought not to marvel at the hostility that we see uh, <clears throat> We ought not to stand by and think that anything strange is happening among us. The fact that men call good evil and evil good. The truth is, men love darkness. And Jesus is the one who told us this. And therefore, they hate the light. The light. They have uh, no desire... As the scripture says, they are sons of disobedience. They follow Satan and his realm. And so what is the need of the hour? And as we, as we go through the Gospels, which we're doing, Matthew's account, we ought not to lose sight of just the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. There's nothing complicated, complex about all of this. And the great need is the pure, simple, uncompromising gospel that Jesus was conveying, and yet men will hate him for it. And what do we see today? We see increasing desires in the visible church to try to emulate the world. I read an article that someone posted uh, <clears throat> that it was really distressing. You know, there's so much emphasis today on entertaining people. And this article was conveying the fact that talking about worship leaders in churches, or larger churches, they can pay to have worship leaders. And, and some of the scenarios are sad. Some of these young men, they're being let go. You know why they're let go? Because they're, they're too old. We're talking about 30-year-old men let go. I'm not talking about the nature of the worship. I'm just saying they're let go because the, the leadership says we need to have someone younger, like in the 20s, to appeal to the 20-year-olds, and it says we need, to, we need to find some way to attract them with the things that they are already listening to. The one who posted that, uh, one of the, uh, the, who posted the article, is one of the uh, sons of one of our elders in our denomination who, who is a leader, an organist at one of the big churches in Philadelphia, and he was the... Uh, sharing the article, but sharing how bad it is. And I wrote, where is the simple old gospel whereby people hear that gospel and desire that? That's what we need to return to. 
And so <clears throat> the thing about it is we need to see and desire the worship of God as he is God. And we need to understand that we, we wrestle against principalities and powers in high places. The scripture makes that very clear. We're, we're not just fighting men. We, we have the prince, of, the, the, the prince of darkness to deal with. We've got the whole demonic realm to deal with. That's who's behind everything. That's the real adversary. All the others are just his pawns. And we need to realize this and, and the fact that we're dealing with those forces of darkness who have these men chained in darkness, enslaved to their evil desires, and the devil will do all that he can to neutralize the church if he can. That's his strategy. We got to learn from history, brethren. We got to learn from the Word of God that we are in this war. It is a supernatural war that we are engaged in for the souls of men. Jesus comes to his hometown, Nazareth. He's coming into the synagogue. You know, a lot of people think of it uh, from this vantage point. If you have a, a famous person, in your hometown, usually people are going to let everybody know, hey, that's our boy. That's our boy. He comes from us. Look at him. You know, he's put us on the map. Is there any other greater individual than Jesus? Look what Jesus was doing. He was teaching like no one had ever taught. He was doing miraculous things. No one ever did anything like Jesus. They should have been proud of Jesus, but they're not where we're going to see. In fact, the scripture says they're going to be filled with rage. Which, how could this be possible? Because men love darkness rather than the light. We're told that after Jesus gave those parables, that he, uh, as Matthew says, he comes to Nazareth, his hometown. He'd grown up where his mother was, it says his brothers and his sisters, they probably all lived in a very close proximity there. Uh, Luke 4 really gives us a more detailed account of Matthew's incident, and we're going to take a look more at Matthew, uh, Luke 4 uh, to gain some specifics there about this incident. But this event of Jesus coming into the synagogue on the Sabbath surely depicts just how totally depraved men can be. Turn with me to Luke 4, Luke 4, beginning at verse 14. Now, it was the custom when he came into uh, the synagogue, and the synagogue is where the, uh, the law was read. It was a common custom for certain men uh, to be given scrolls to read and then to give a word of exhortation. They were allowed to give a word of ex- exhortation on that. Uh, for example, we, we know this to be the case the, uh, with the fact that Paul, on his first missionary journey to Antioch of Pisidia, it says that he went into the synagogue and the head of the synagogue gave him a, uh, something to read and then said to Paul, 
do you, would you have any words you'd like to say? And of course he's going to say something. And he gave him the stage to share the gospel. So what he read, he began to apply the scriptures. Well, some of them weren't quite ready for that. Others are amazed. And you're going to have the, the responses. Some whom God is working in our lives, they're going to respond favorably. Others, they're going to be hostile against Paul. But it was a common custom for, for men to, for some men to be allowed to read the scroll and then give an exhortation. Now, we're not told all that Jesus said, but we're told enough that his, uh, his word of exhortation, now we don't know if this is all that he said that Luke records, but if you notice here, <clears throat> look what Jesus uh, said, verse 18 and following. So he was given the role of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah. So Jesus opens it to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, is what he's reading. Now this is, uh, this is Luke's paraphrase of, of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he gave... He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now initially, it says, verse 22, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now here it tells us, Jesus, we have every indication that this is not all that Jesus said. He just didn't simply read this and close it up and says, all right, uh, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. He must have been given some word of exhortation, which is why the people, as Matthew says, they were amazed uh, let's look at what Matthew says about it. It says um, in Matthew 13, it says they they were astonished and said, "Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers?" Now, just reading the scripture, you don't get this idea. Where did you get all this wisdom from? He must have been elaborating upon this. Uh, elaborating on the great truths of Isaiah 61, specifying in detail how magnificent these truths were, building this hope. Uh, his his exegesis must have been spectacular there. Uh, the way he shared it impressed the people. Where did he get this wisdom? Now, <clears throat> Isaiah 61 is one of those great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And here he says, first of all, he says, I am the anointed of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
meaning what I am saying and what I am doing, he says, is not ordinary. Now, what was Jesus saying? What was he preaching? We're told by Mark that when he came back from being tempted by the devil, it says he was simply saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus was saying. In fact, that's what John the Baptist was preaching the exact same thing, that the kingdom of God was at hand. Repent and believe in him who was to come. So, when he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You know, most who have studied preachers in history have acknowledged that, for example, Charles Spurgeon, who lived in England and preached in England in the middle, the latter part of the 19th century in London, was one of the greatest preachers of all time. In fact, he's called the Prince of Preachers. One of the titles given to Spurgeon, uh, who, by the way, Spurgeon was a great admirer of guess who? Who preceded him, George Whitfield. He said, I'm just, I'm nothing compared to Whitfield, but I'm trying to follow what Whitfield is. And so the greatest preacher... One of the greatest, I'd have to be careful to say the greatest, but one of the greatest preachers, of no doubt, of the 18th century was Whitfield. Uh, and Spurgeon was one of the recognized greatest preachers of the 19th century. Both, mind you, staunch, uncompromising Calvinists. You know... <clears throat> who taught the doctrines of grace, who, who taught the five points of Calvinism, which are what? Man is totally depraved. God has unconditionally chosen some from the foundation of the world to lay his love upon. Not because he foresaw something in them, but because God was gracious. And that the Son of God came in this world to die for those people. Not for those who would never believe, but for those people. And the Spirit of God comes and draws these people irresistibly to the Savior. And once the Spirit irresistibly draws these people to the Savior, then the Spirit will keep those people, will cause them to persevere. And, you know, I've, I haven't had the opportunity, but only in writing, to point out to those. Uh, our Arminian brethren like to uh, point out what to come across as the champions of evangelism. And I'm just chopping at the bit to remind them who some of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world were. There is no conflict in a zeal for the gospel and all these great doctrinal truths. They go hand in hand. Jesus is coming, and uh, he opens up this scroll, and he says, the thing about it is, I'm anointed to tell you this gospel that I've been proclaiming. That's what I'm anointed to tell you. And this, this anointment is the fact that I have come to set men free out of their bondage to sin. 
That's why I've come. This is my message that I'm trying to get across to you. You know, people don't need to be told just how good they are, which that this is a common thing. Why do we think that we have to uh, entertain people by imitating the world's methods? Why, Why do we think we have to do that? That's not what Jesus did. That's not what John the Baptist did. That's not what all the others down throughout history. That's not what they did. Jesus said, I've come to preach to you and anointed this gospel. And this gospel is, you're in bondage to sin. You're a slave. I have come to proclaim release to the captives, to the prisoners. Well, I'm not a, a, a slave to sin. See, people think they're not a slave to sin. Well, it doesn't matter what they think. It's what the truth is. Jesus says everyone who practices sin, John 8, is a slave of sin. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. No, men need to be set free from the bondage to their sin. And Jesus said, I have come, I have been anointed to announce freedom to those in captivity. And so we have to believe God at his word. We've got to believe Jesus at his word. And it's not about trying to build people up. We need to tell people the, the, the issue that you have is worse than you think. You're in trouble. You need a Savior. You need to live for Christ. You need to be constantly reminded of the fact <clears throat> it is not all well that you struggle with sin. We, we have to teach you how to have victory over that sin. And that victory over sin begins by being freed from the bondage to that sin. You know, our main problem is that we, we all have transgressed the law of God, haven't we? And God has been angered. That's why the psalmist says, God is angry with the wicked all day long. They say, well, who's the wicked? Well, not me. Well, yeah, it is. Without Christ, we're the wicked ones. He can't deny this truth of what the Scripture says. We can try to justify our sins. We can try to justify our, our sins by saying, you know, it's my civil right to live a, a lifestyle that God says is abominable. That's my civil right to do it. Or people say, you know, it's my right. They shout their rights all day long. I have a right over my body to do with my body what I want, and if I want to kill this baby within me, it is my right to do that. Jesus said, I have come to proclaim release to the captives. You are in darkness. You are a slave to your sins. But I can set you free. I can set you free. Just believe in me. See, the reality is that we are in bondage to sin and to Satan. The Bible makes that very clear. Jesus said, I have come 
to announce the favorable year of the Lord. You know what that favorable year of the Lord was? Historically, it is the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, God uh, said that there would be a special time of rejoicing. Uh, all land ownership would go back to its original owners on the 50th year. It was a time of great rejoicing. Now, what Jesus is obviously talking about here, he's not just talking about that economic or <clears throat> physical release. He's talking about the favorable year of the Lord. He's talking about a release of greater proportions than that could ever have thought. In other words, I'm proclaiming to you the favorable year of the Lord. I'm here to set you free out of the domain of darkness. You know, when, when God saved, Jesus saved Saul of Tarsus, and he made him the apostle to the Gentiles. So, uh, Paul, when he was before King Agrippa, he says, reminding uh, Agrippa of his conversion, he says, what, what is my ministry? Well, look at what his ministry is. Turn to Acts 26. Look what he said in verse... Um, Here's what Jesus said to him in verses 16 and 18. But arise and stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to anoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. All Paul is doing here is simply saying what Jesus was proclaiming to his town folk in Nazareth's synagogue. The gospel message is a message of deliverance of being freed out of darkness into light. We don't have that capacity to free ourselves. You see, that's, that's what's so amazing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to actually free people. As Isaiah says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It says no one arouses themselves to take hold of God. We don't have that ability. We are at the mercy of God. And Jesus comes with this magnificent message. I'm the Messiah. I have, I have come into the stage of human history. I am fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy right now. I can set all you free out of your bondage. I can do it. We don't have to be slaves any longer. He came to give us the light. He is the light. And as the scripture says, his light is the life of men. We, ha we have a purpose in life. We don't, and notice what Jesus said in Luke 4. He says, I've come to set free those who are downtrodden. People who are just beaten down by life. Who's experienced all of these problems. Who... For whatever reason, they've lost hope. Jesus says, I've come to restore the hope. I've come 
See, whatever your problem is, whatever your burden is, I have come to set you free from that burden. And so, therefore, in Jesus, we have a purpose in life. We've been, uh, we, can, we can obey His Word. Are we, are we downtrodden? Are we hopeless? Are we hopeless? Jesus came to deliver men out of that hopeless situation. The truth is, men need the simple gospel. But where did the citizens of Nazareth go wrong? Well, if you look at our text in Matthew 13, here's where they went wrong. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the son of Mary? Don't we know his brothers? And don't we know his sisters? Let me ask you something. Have you ever been condemned or judged by external things that people look at you and have judged you in a in a negative way because of some external thing about you? Have you ever been judged by someone who says, we just don't think you are intelligent enough because you have never gone to college? And... Uh, <clears throat> What they're thinking is, now wait a minute, who is this Jesus? He's the son of a carpenter. Uh, Jesus, what uh, what school of theology did you get your degree from? Is there a rabbi that you taught to? I mean, we are impressed with the wisdom that's coming out of you. You, you are teaching in an authority like we haven't ever heard. We still haven't figured out where you're getting all these miraculous powers from, but you are just a carpenter's son. The Son of God rejected. Now get this. The Son of God rejected because of his vocational and family identification. That's why he's rejected. Are you serious? You're going to reject this man who has taught like no one has ever taught, who no one has done these miraculous things of people seeing and the lame walking, the deaf hearing. He can cast out demons. But after all, he's just a carpenter's boy, and we know his family. And he's condemned because of it. You know, obviously, they didn't hold Jesus' family in that great high regard. Now, they did you? It's a great dignified family. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't have reacted the way, even though they can't deny what they're hearing and what they're seeing. They, they, they let the other override all of that. They let the circumstances, they let his environmental upbringing dictate to them what, how they're going to respond to him, which is crazy when you think about it. You know, it says, verse 57 says, they took offense at him. Took offense? 
They took offense at him because of his upbringing. That's what they took offense at. Obviously, they didn't hold, like I said, him and that, his family in that great high regard. Bad genes? Is that what you got, genes? Bad genes? I mean, we, uh, we, it's hard to explain otherwise, but is that where it is? Bad genes? On a lesser note, I remember uh, I preached at both my father and my mother's funeral in Wisconsin. Born and raised in Tennessee, but the, we had the funerals up at the old church there in Wisconsin. I preached at both my parents' funerals. At the last time I preached was at my mother. She died last, about six years after my dad. And after, I remember after it was over, we went over next door to my cousin's house, and uh, who I grew up with. You know, we used to, we didn't spend we we were born. I was born and raised in Tennessee. For years, we used to go maybe during the summer every summer. But we didn't spend that much time with my with my relatives. But I remember after the sermon, and I was over talking. The uh, the husband of my cousin, he says to me, I should have asked him what he meant. He says, John, you are the last of the boys we ever thought would be a preacher. I, now, I didn't think I was too crazy as a young man. I didn't tell them all my stories. I, I, they couldn't have heard about all those stories of, as a teenager, and I won't go into that, but... You're the last of it. Now, he really didn't say it in a negative way, but it still scratched my head. What, what, are you supposed to give this air of intellectualness? I don't know what they were looking for, but you're the last. You, no way. I remember when my dad came out of church in Kingsport, after I graduated from seminary and the preacher, this was another denomination, my dad said, yeah, I have a son graduating from seminary. He says, yeah, he's a Presbyterian minister. He said, well, what went wrong, Marshall? What went wrong? He's not a Methodist? <laughs> and uh, You just have no idea how people are going to respond. I just tell my dad, you know, what? I'll tell you what happened was, God got a hold of me. What can I say? The ignorant person that I was, and I was ignorant of the Scripture, God got a hold of me and changed me. That's the answer. You know, the bottom line is that the people in Nazareth, they rejected Jesus because of his environmental upbringing. And Jesus will say to them, you know, I'm not even a prophet. Is is without honor except in his own country. They should have believed Jesus for who he was, for what he said. Now, and that's what Jesus was doing in Nazareth. I want you to turn to John chapter 10, and let's pick up reading at verse 24, John 10. John 10, beginning at verse 24. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me as greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, For a good work we don't stone you, but the blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. What Jesus has been saying all along, what he said to the people in Nazareth. We know your upbringing, Jesus, but Jesus saying, but, but you're astonished at my teaching. You've seen my miracles. What am I trying to, what have I been doing in front of you all along, but you just won't pay attention. I've been telling you everything that I've been saying and doing is bearing witness. I am that promised Messiah. As Jesus said here, look, if you don't want to believe me, don't believe me, but at least believe the works. If I'm doing the works of the Messiah, duh, don't you think I'm the Messiah? Just believe the works. Let the works be the testimony. Let him be the witness. But they didn't. They allowed his past, his upbringing, to have greater weight than obviously all the miracles that he was doing. We just don't know where you're getting the powers from, Jesus. Well, maybe because I am the Messiah. Did you ever think about that? Well, no. And why? Because you're in darkness. You're a slave of Satan, and I can set you free. Just believe the works that I'm doing. Believe it. See, the thing about it is, and, and why is it when Jesus said in John 10, why is it then that Jesus can do all these works? He can preach like no one ever preached, do incredible things. And why is it that some people just don't get it? Well, Jesus said it, did he? You do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you look over, turn over to John eight forty-seven for a moment. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you're not of God. The reason you can't see my works for what they are 
And you can't appreciate my preaching for what it is because you're still in darkness. You're still a slave to sin. You're a son of disobedience. But I can set you free. I can do it. All that Jesus can do, all that any preacher can ever do, is to tell people the simple gospel. Is to tell them the truth. And the truth is, you need a Savior. You're in bondage to sin. All your problems are because you walk in darkness. He can free you. Just believe Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. Now, unless we think that people are not held responsible for refusing to believe. Now, Jesus said, and herein is the sort of the mystery, I guess. If you look at Matthew thirteen fifty-eight, look what it says. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, how we take this? Well, let's keep this in mind. What was the purpose of a miracle anyway, according to the Word of God? The purpose of, of, of a miracle in the life of Jesus and the, the work of the apostles is that it was to do what? Create a sense of awe and amazement, right? In order to get people to say, Pay attention. Now, you've been amazed, right? You, you've been awestruck by what's happened. So now listen to me very carefully, and I'll tell you what is the case. Now, turn with me to Acts 2, and you'll see this. Acts 2, look at verses, um, first of all, at verse 14, then we're going to move over to verse 22. This was on the day of Pentecost. All these uh, amazing things happened. They began to speak in tongues, and people heard uh, the gospel message in their own dialect. And I said, wait a minute. What, what's going on here? Wait, I, these people don't know all these tongues. What, what's happening here? Now, they've been amazed, right? So Peter says, pay attention. I'm about to preach to you. Verse 14. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judah and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Now, you better pay close attention to what I'm about to say. You've been duly impressed. I'm going to tell you what's happened. And then over here in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Jesus did all of these amazing things to impress people so that they would listen to him and accept him as the Messiah. That's why he did it. But not many miracles were done in Nazareth because Jesus knew the hearts of the people. They had hardened their hearts, which is why Luke 4, verse 28 says, instead of being impressed, they were impressed, and then letting the natural thing follow, believing him as the Messiah, it says they were filled with rage. 
Luke says, filled with rage, and they said, come with us, Jesus. And they were escorting him. Nazareth was built on a hill. Come with us, Jesus. And they were going to throw him off the hill and kill him. Of course, it wasn't his time. The scripture says he just kind of just escapes out of the midst. Filled with rage because he says, Today Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled, and I have come to set you free, and you're going to kill me for it? You're going to kill me because I'm a mere man, but I'm not a mere man. I'm doing the works of the Messiah. Believe the works. Believe the works. We men, he said, the reality is this. Here's what we got to keep reminding ourselves. And the lesson, again, the lesson of Jesus' encounter in the synagogue of Nazareth is that unless God opens your heart to the truth, you will never see the truth. Now, there is a responsibility there on our part. See, there's a, we, we can't get away from both. We're not going to hear unless we're the sheep. But then Jesus says, you should be listening. You should be obeying. You should believe in me. Now, I'm going to preach both. I'm going to preach the fact that uh, everyone who ends up in hell ends up in hell because they refused to believe in Jesus. And the wrath of God abides upon them. We have no one to blame but ourselves. I did everything. I'm the Messiah. Believe me. I'm the one. I can set you free. Just believe me. The great need of the hour, brethren, is this. We need, we don't need to fancy up all these things. We need just the simple gospel preached over and over because that is the great need of humanity. Nothing will ever change. People in darkness need to see the light. And therefore, they will only see the light if we preach to them the truth. We don't try to... uh, somehow compromise the gospel. We don't compromise anything. There aren't any other ways that lead to God besides Jesus. There aren't any. It's not sincerity that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. That's what we need. And and if people are in darkness, we need to pray, God, have mercy upon their souls so that when the preacher preaches... It will be like Lydia, who was in the synagogue as a God-fearer, but it didn't click until one day Paul preached, and all of a sudden it clicked. And why did it click? Because it says the Lord opened her heart to believe. And then it all made sense to Lydia. And so we just preached that old gospel. Spurgeon told us, he, uh, he told us in his lectures to his students, he says, Almost in every message, you just got to preach Jesus crucified and risen. He says, that's what I preach. You got to preach Jesus crucified. That's, that's the great story. That will never change. It's always the great need. 
Let us pray. Lord, 